I want to continue with you from uh, Hebrews chapter 2. A lot of people asking the question, what is man? A lot of people aren't sure who they are, what they are in our society, in our world today. A lot of people don't know what their destiny is. They're kind of groping around, searching around. And this particular section, verses 5 through 9 of chapter 2 of Hebrews, gives us a tremendous insight into man's destiny. We're going to basically look at uh, the recovery of man's destiny uh, through Jesus Christ. Powerful, powerful passage. Now you have to, you have to kind of stay with me. It's a little, it's going to be a little technical, uh, because there's two, there's two parallel, uh, thoughts running through this passage. Uh, one has to deal with uh, Jesus Christ, and we've been talking about him as being uh, God's superior revelation, right? And he's been superior to the angels, and, and the writer of the Hebrews has uh, taken um, great pains to point that out and quoted a number of passages from the Old Testament to support his thesis. He's going to continue with that uh, a little bit, but a- alongside that, we're going to see also uh, and learn about uh, about mankind and what God's destiny uh, was for man, what happened to that, and uh, what is in the future for man. Uh, so I hope you find it as exciting and as stimulating uh, as I have. Read with me again. Uh, I want to back up to um, chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, because this, this verse 5 is really a continuation of his argument there. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Obviously, to none of the angels did God say that. Then he says, are are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? So he draws a contrast between the Son, who indeed will uh, sit and in judgment of all of his enemies, and the angels will uh, be servants of those who will inherit salvation. Now, then, in chapter two, the first four verses, it's like a parenthetical statement. He's 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 taking a time away from his original argument, and he is uh, stressing the importance for his readers to pay close attention to what he's saying to them, to what he's written to them. Uh, he is desperate. It's the first of five. Uh, what we call warning passages in this letter because the message is so imperative and it's so imperative for those people at that particular point in time uh, in that particular church because they were doubting Christ and they were uh, weak in their commitment. They had an originally strong commitment to Christ but now their commitment was weakening. Uh, Remember they were undergoing persecution and trial, all sorts of difficulties It has been a while now. They have not grown in their faith. And in that kind of state, with with persecution coming upon them again, uh, the temptation to abandon the faith and go back to the security of the old ways is very, very strong on them. So he warns them and he says, uh, we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard. So that we do not drift away. Remember, these people are in danger of drifting away. 
For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment... So again, another reference to the Old Testament, to the to the uh, uh, the Old Covenant, the message that uh, they had traditionally believed was given by angels. If that was so strictly observed, and the requirement for obedience was so strict, he says, "How how about us? How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation, that which he has been announcing through Christ?" He says, this salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. And God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So there was, there was ample verification, ample validation of this message uh, of salvation that has been preached, which supersedes now the old way, which supersedes the Mosaic law and the uh, means of works to attain God's favor. Now, beginning in verse 5 of chapter 2 through verse 9, he returns back to his argument regarding the comparison between the Son and angels. Verse 5, he says, It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. And again, that's a reference back up to uh, verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1. He goes on, he says, but there is a place where someone has testified. It's kind of like you and I would say, well, you know, the scriptures teach, and then we would quote a passage. We wouldn't exactly name the passage, uh, but he refers in a general kind of a sense to the Psalms. Now he quotes from Psalm 8. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now after that urgent warning in verses 1 through 4, to not ignore such a great salvation, he now again returns to that argument about the angels and Christ's superiority over the angels in verse 5. And... Along with that, in this passage, we are also going to see something of this great salvation of which he has spoken. We are going to see uh, not only what man was meant to be, but also what man became, and then what is in the future for man. It's all in this passage. Man today is totally lost. He's totally lost. He has lost his relationship with God, and in so doing, he has also lost the very meaning of his existence. If you know not God, you don't know the meaning of your existence. People who are godless, who are without God, are without hope. And they are they are groping around trying to find meaning in all manner of things, all manner of uh, some very good things. But they don't bring the kind of fulfillment and the kind of uh, satisfaction to their life that they would hope. 
See, God is the very, the very reason for our existence. We exist for Him, for a relationship with Him. That's why He made us. Now, in verse 5, 5 through 9, we're going to learn three things about man. First of all, the ideal of what man should be. Secondly, the actual state of man. And thirdly, how that actual state can be changed into the ideal through Christ. Now again, look at verse 5. It is not to the angels that he has subjected the world to come. God never intended for the world to come to be subject to angels. He meant for the world to come to be subject to somebody else. The same is true with this world. This world was never intended to be subject to angels. But we'll see that in some very real sense it is subject to angels. And they're not exactly good angels. Now the world to come, that is a reference to the coming inhabited earth. There is a new earth coming. I don't know if you realize that, but this is, this is a, a tremendous, tremendous reality. The Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, uh, Peter writes about a, a new heaven and a new earth. John writes about it in uh, his book of Revelation in chapter 21. Verse 1, he speaks of a new heaven, a new earth. He says, because the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. We read about uh, destruction. We read about uh, fire burning up uh, this earth, destroying it. And uh, Christ coming and remaking uh, the new heavens and the new earth. So he says this, this new inhabited earth that is to come will not be subject to to angels. It'll be a different kind of an earth. It will be perfect. It will be great and glorious. And whoever reigns over it will also uh, be great and glorious. But they won't be angels. They won't be angels. So their present superiority, angels, over men, is only temporary. In the world to come, angels will be servants and not rulers. Now, our present world is inhabited by angels, isn't it? And it's affected by angels. In fact, it's, in a very real sense, ruled by angels. Listen to some of the scriptures that will tell us that. Who's the chief fallen angel? Satan himself, okay? And he's called by Jesus in three different places. He's called the prince of this world. The prince of this world. He holds a position of power. He's called in another place the usurper. He has usurped that power. We'll see where that has occurred. The Apostle Paul calls him the God of this age. Small g. He says in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 2. Uh, he's referred to as the ruler of the kingdom of the air. In Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12. He's described as the ruler of darkness. John refers again in, in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. He says, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. So there, there are spiritual beings, angelic beings, um, evil, malevolent spiritual beings who are in control, who have rulership, if you will, over this present inhabited earth. We know from Ephesians that the world is under tremendous 
uh, demonic influence. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 again speaks of the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So I just underscore that uh, because in this particular passage where Jesus has been compared to angels and in Jewish theology, angels, remember, are very, very highly exalted. And in this present world, they do have a significant place of rulership and authority. The scriptures tell us this. Now, there are good angels, obviously, and they do also have authority. We read in Daniel chapter 10, uh, chapter 10, Daniel talks about Michael and another good angel who are doing battle with uh, two very powerful uh, evil angels who have been influencing the leaders of Greece, the empires of Greece and Persia. So we get insight into this spiritual warfare that goes on in that unseen realm. It is very, very real. But the coming world, angels are not going to rule. Angels are going to be servants. So who is going to rule over the coming inhabited earth? The new earth, do you think? Who's going to rule over that? Huh? The sun, that's right. Is it only the sun who's going to rule? Anybody else going to rule with him? Does the Bible speak anywhere about co-heirs? There are people who are co-inheritors with Christ of this new created uh, realm? Sure, who's that? The church. Believers. That's right. That's mind-blowing, isn't it? I mean, I don't know about you, but there's times when I have, I have trouble balancing my checkbook and I'm thinking that at some point out there in eternity I'm going to be ruling and reigning with Christ over a new creation. It doesn't compute. It, it, it boggles my mind, the very concept. And I don't know exactly what we're going to be doing, but if we understand something of rulership and reigning, and we understand something of kingdoms in this life, then there must be something of that in the next, but beyond our wildest imagination. Because we're talking about a perfect existence. Now, look at verses uh, 6 through 8 in our passage in chapter 2 of Hebrews. Actually, what I want you to do is I want you to turn back to Psalm 8, from which this is quoted. Back to Psalm 8. Now, the, the, the writer of the psalm, David, presumably, he's, he's absolutely overcome with wonder. As you read through the first part of the psalm, as he thinks of the glory and the honor of, and, and the wonder of God's created order. And then all of a sudden, he says, what is man? In the context of, the, of, the, of this incredible universe, God, that you've created. And you put man on this little tiny speck of dust, earth, in this infinite universe. What is man that you are mindful of him? See, the idea is, in the context, man is, takes on really a tremendous amount of insignificance, doesn't he? Just in terms of size and, and place. Who are we? You ever been out on the ocean 
and you just feel so insignificant. You can't see any land or maybe you've been up on the mountains and, and you're looking out and you, and you see this vast vista. Have you ever felt just kind of tiny and insignificant? Well, that's what David is expressing. Look at with me with Psalm 8. Verse 1, O Lord, our God. He says, How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, and from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. Oh, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. And the idea is to look in upon him in order to help him and benefit him. Why why would you want to help us? You made him, meaning man, a little lower than the heavenly beings. And that can also be translated, interestingly, the Hebrew word is Elohim, which can also be translated God. In the beginning, man was created, I would submit to you, a little lower than God. We were tremendously uh, more substantial than we are in our present state. And so he says, you, you made him a little bit lower for a little while than heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands and you put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and all that swim, the paths of the seas. Now question, as we read Psalm 5, who or Psalm 8, who does Psalm 8 refer to now? That passage about, he says, what, what is man that you are mindful of him. Who does that refer to? Huh? What does it say? What's the word? What is? Man. It refers to man, doesn't it? I mean, the context and everything is very, very clear. It refers to man very clearly. But, remember, our writer to the Hebrews when he is substantiating his claims with reference to Jesus Christ, he draws on his Old Testament references from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. He's not drawing on the Hebrew, directly from the Hebrew. In the Greek translation, what the writers for the Septuagint did is they went through the whole Hebrew text and they looked for every single passage they could find that they could reference to the coming Messiah. And they found this passage wherein you see the phrase, the Son of Man. Jesus, doesn't he take that title upon himself? Now Jesus draws on it from the book of Daniel. The writers uh, of the Septuagint understood that. And so the writer now to the Hebrews adopts this so that he can substantiate his claims of Christ's superiority to those people who are tempted to leave and their faith in him is waning. Do you follow? This is, it's a little technical, I know, but it's important to understand why he's using this passage. And we're going to look at, a, at, at two parallel tr- uh, interpretations of this passage. Now, so it refers basically to man. And in that context... We see not only 
uh, man, but we also are going to see Christ referred to. He uses this, as we said earlier, to advance his, uh, his testimony about Jesus, that he is greater than the angels. So it's not angels who are going to rule the world to come, but rather Christ, and he is shown to be superior. Now we also see in this passage uh, man's destiny as revealed by God. If you turn back to Hebrews... What do you think that God's original destiny for man was? What does it say in that passage in Psalm 8? Wasn't it to rule? Absolutely. Do you remember back in Genesis? Do you suppose that David, in pondering creation and, and, and thinking about where does man fit in all this, and when he writes those words, what is man, and the position and the crowning with honor and glory that God had given man, do you think that he's possibly going back to creation and to Genesis chapter 1, when God said, let us make man in our image, verse 26, and then he goes on and he says, let them have a dominion, let them rule over the, over the birds of the air and the, and the uh, fish of the sea and over all the animals, over all the things that move along the ground. He gave man dominion, didn't he? Back in the beginning, man was God's vice regent. Man was given authority to rule over this inhabited earth. That was God's ideal for man. What is man that you should give this to him? You made him a little lower than the angels for a season, for a time. In the beginning, though man was perfect, though he was innocent, he was still a little bit lower than the angels. But he was still crowned with honor and glory. He was given a position of honor to rule God's earth, his inhabited earth, to be the steward over his creation. So God put all things in subjection to Adam. He was the head of the human race. He was the Lord of the earth. Even the animal kingdom, we know, was subject to him. But something happens. A sad note occurs if you look at Our passage in Hebrews, look with me at verse 8. After putting everything under his feet, the writer says, In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. Is everything subject to man? Was it originally put in subjection to him? Yes. But why is it that we don't see everything subject to man? Now, something happened, huh? Something very drastic happened. In chapter 3 of Genesis, we have what we know as the fall of man. Fall, the fall from a state of perfection to a state of imperfection. Very simply stated. Something very drastic has happened to mankind. He fell from that place of, of ideal existence to a very fractured existence. Now notice this, in our passage in Hebrews, it says, at, this pre- at present, we do not see everything subject to him. 
Who is him? Who does him refer to, that word, that pronoun? It refers to man? Could it also refer to Christ? Sure. Do we see everything sub, in subjection to Christ at this point? No, we live in the what? The already and the not yet, don't we? The kingdom is here, but it's not yet here fully. So not everything is in subjection to Christ yet. Will it be? Well, it says so at the end of the book. You read the last, last chapter. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we have two parallel interpretations. Not everything is in subjection to Christ. And in man, we see, even know from our own experience, that we're far from the ideal, the original that God intended for us. Everything is not subject to man any longer. Man lost the dominion, he lost the crown, he lost the glory that he had enjoyed. Adam and Eve had become fallen creatures, they become slaves of sin and slaves of Satan, we're told. Turn back to Genesis chapter 3. Most of you read this account. You know what happens. The tempter comes. He deceives the woman. She takes the fruit. She eats it. She gives some to her husband who is with her. He eats it. Uh, We're told in verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened. The idea is immediately now they began to see like they'd never seen before. And they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This is in direct uh, contrast to verse 25 of chapter 2, where it says they were both naked and unashamed. They had no, no reason to hide. There was no shame. There was no guilt. But now there's shame and guilt because of this disobedience. But as a result now, there are some consequences to uh, their sin. There's some consequences to their disobedience. Look at verse 16 of chapter 3. This is the consequence to the woman. To the woman, God said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So we see in that passage two things that are significant in the life of a woman, and they come as a direct result of the fall. One is a childbirth is going to be a very, very painful experience. Is it painful, ladies? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, when you're going through it, do you desire to have another one? Do you say, oh, let's do this again? <laughs> my wife didn't. When we, you know, She says, oh, my. I mean, and being in the delivery room observing this, I thought, oh, my. <laughs> I don't think that childbearing was originally meant to be painful. I think that probably it was meant to be a pleasurable experience. Is sex a pleasurable experience for most people? Yeah. I think, I think, I think the consequence of sex was meant also to be a pleasurable experience, not a painful experience. Just by what he says. That's the inference I'm drawing. 
But there's also something else that it becomes comes as a consequence to that to that disobedience and to the fall from that ideal state that man lived in. And that is that though a woman's desire will be for her husband, he's going to rule over her. Do we find that to be true? Do we find men ruling women? Absolutely. It's happened from the beginning on, hasn't it? And you find women, some women will absolutely fight against this, but this is the natural state of things now. This is a consequence of the fall. This is a consequence of sin. Now God has given us in the New Testament a way to deal with it by the power of His Spirit. But you find today that, that, that women will fight against this natural inclination and some women fight so much against it they become man haters you have to become a man hater in this battle against men ruling over you now men will men and the rule of men again is is a consequence of sin consequence of the fall what about to adam what happens to adam look at verse 17 to adam god said because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which i commanded you you must not eat of it. You didn't listen to me, Adam. I gave you the straight scoop. You listened to somebody else. You didn't listen to me. And because you didn't listen to me and do what I said, this is the consequence to you now. He says, cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed is the ground because of you. And through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. So God says to the man, you're going to have to work hard all your life. And it's not just work, it's toil. Laborious toil. God meant originally for work to be an enjoyable experience. Didn't he tell Adam and Eve, or didn't he tell Adam in the beginning, to, uh, uh, to subdue the earth, to rule over the kingdoms? God gave them work to do. It was meant to be enjoyable. But as a result of the fall now, you see just the opposite. Most of us say, oh, goody. We wake up in the morning and say, oh, goody, I get to go to work today. Right? Don't we most of us say that? Most people say, oh, oh I got to go to work again today. Oh. You know, and you drag out of bed, you get a shower, a shave maybe, you get in your car and you drudge off to work. That's, that's most people. That's the natural way of things now. It was never meant to be that way. Never. And we have to work hard against it. I mean, don't you have to get your attitude up? Don't you have to psych yourself up? Don't you have to say, oh, whoopee, I get to go to work today. I mean, you go into work and you're really, you're really enthusiastic, excited about it. And people say, what, what's up with you today? What are you taking? Right? What are you on? And then later on in Genesis chapter 3, we see uh, that they, they were put out of the garden. Why were they put out of the garden? Punishment? You know what I think? I think they're put out of the garden 
Because God was protecting them from themselves. Have you ever tried to self-medicate? I mean, take care of yourself, heal yourself. What else? What it was in the garden that God was trying to protect them from? The tree of life. Now they know they're sick. Now they know they're fallen. Now they know they got a problem. It's very logical to think, ah, oh, but the tree of life. Try to make themselves well. Man has been trying to make himself well ever since, hasn't he? Is he able to? No, not really. We poured gazillions of dollars. <laughs> and I mean gazillions of, 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 of amounts of money down through the history of mankind to try to make ourselves well. We have explored every avenue of philosophy, religion, to try to make ourselves well. We're trying to get to the tree of life. But Jesus is the tree of life. Jesus is. When Adam and Eve sinned, the whole earth was corrupted. The whole earth was, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, subjected to futility and corruption. They immediately lost their kingdom. They lost their crown. The crown that was given to them back in the beginning. And all mankind fell in Adam. You say, that's not fair. I, I would have obeyed God. I wouldn't have eaten of the fruit. Yeah, you say that in 2020 hindsight. God has given you commands today. Do you obey every command? No, see, it's just the same. It was more tragic for them, however, because they were totally innocent and perfect. They knew better. Hence, it was more tragic, their fall, and they dragged us with them. Because all mankind fell in Adam, because he lost his kingdom and his crown, we do not now see the earth subject to man. The earth originally was subject to him. The earth supplied all of his needs without having to do anything. He had only to accept, he had only to enjoy the earth and, and, and what the earth would provide for him. He didn't have to toil for it. And then, tempted by Satan, man sinned and Satan usurped the crown that God had originally given man. And it's there that we see the change in the chain of command. Man fell to the bottom of the chain of command. And the earth under the evil one now rules man. If you pay much attention at all today to ecological issues, you know that we do not rule this world. It rules us, doesn't it? Sure. I mean, with all of our modern technology, we are continually fighting against the earth for our survival. Constantly battling the earth, and all of the conditions of the world. Are we not? What else has happened to Adam after he'd sinned? You go right into chapter 4. You see the first murder. Chapter 4, you see polygamy starting. Shortly thereafter, you see death enter into the scene. By the time we come to chapter 6, God is sending a flood to destroy all of mankind, except for one family. In fact, he says in chapter 6, I'm sorry I made man. And he only saves one family. Whose family was that? 
Noah, that's right. See, man indeed had lost his crown. He indeed had lost his exalted position. He indeed had lost his throne and his kingdom that God had given him back in the beginning. The prince of the earth of the now Satan and the whole world we we know lies in the power of the evil one. He rules the cursed earth which in turn rules sinful man. When man lost his crown he lost his mastery of himself as well as the mastery of the earth. We don't even master we can't even master our own lives, can we? Aren't we out of control? You ever gone on eating binges? You ever been out of control with your anger? You ever, you ever lost it over something and, you, and later on you've finally gotten some kind of control and you're chagrined and embarrassed by what you've gone through, what you've evidenced in your life? We can go on and on and on, can't we? Man lost mastery over himself as well as mastery over the earth. He is totally sinful, a slave to sin. Sad, sad state. Not only that, but the, the whole animal kingdom, which was originally subject to him, is now subject to him, but not out of affection, out of fear. Do animals fear man? Yeah, yeah, animals fear us. But in the beginning, animals didn't fear man. There was a wonderful relationship there. You see this relationship replaced later on, and it's described in Isaiah when there's no disharmony amongst the animals and even a children can handle a snake and it will not bite them. The ground originally produced good things naturally and abundantly for man to have for the taking, just for the taking. Can you imagine that? It's all free. It's all abundant. God says, I just want to bless you. I've given you all of this for yours. But now the ground produces thorns and weeds. Do you know there were no weeds in the garden, apparently? (laughs) And now the ground just produces harmful things, and it produces them naturally. Not the original intent from God. We experience extremes of heat and cold. We extreme, uh, experience poisonous plants, reptiles, earthquakes, tornadoes, floods, fires, wars. A whole gamut of destruction, don't we? It was not that way in the beginning. All these things were released upon man after the fall. Virtually everything God had given for man's good and blessing now had become his enemy. And man has been fighting a losing battle ever since. It's a constant, everyday battle. For millennia, man himself has been dying, and now we're only coming to find out that the very earth we live on is dying. That's what our scientists are telling us. And the earth itself amazingly understands its own condition. Paul in Romans chapter 8 personifies the earth. And listen to what he says. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. 
For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it. The earth knows itself that it's subjected to futility, that it is dying, that it is passing away. Why did God subject the earth to futility? In order that man might continually have trouble. Why does God want man to continually have trouble in this present life? Because man has to know that God is aware of his sin. And man is suffering in the consequences of his own sin. He's got to fight the very earth that was designed to be his servant. But God's promising this is all going to end. And a new inhabited earth is coming. Paul again says this to us. The creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. The whole of creation is longing and waiting for the final revelation of the sons of God. This new coming earth. When the kingdom of God is finally consummated. And then the earth will be restored. In the meantime, man is subject to the earth. He plants, but he's not sure who's going to reap. He builds cities and houses and dams and monuments, but they're all subject to destruction. They're all subject to decay. They're all subject to fire, erosion, wearing away, aren't they? Everything we build wears down, wears down. Man lives in jeopardy every hour. You can work hard all your life and be at the height, at the absolute height of your professional career and then develop a tumor on the brain. And everything you've worked for can be lost. We know of, of, of gifted men and women, professional athletes, who have trained and worked hard all their lives, pointing towards the championship. And in one single moment, a career-ending injury. And we think, what a tragedy. And it is. But this is the futility that we face every single day in our lives. We live with death, do we not? We live with uncertainty. We have no guarantees. We leave here tonight. What's going to happen? There's no guarantees that we'll see each other next week. Man lives in jeopardy every single hour. He fights himself, he fights his fellow man, he fights his earth. Every day we read and we hear of, of the distress of the nations. We hear of, of wars and rumors of wars and, and uh, statesmen, politicians, people who are making deals behind the scenes. We have no faith, no confidence. People are saying, peace, 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 and there is no peace. And we've become very cynical about it. Down deep inside, we hope. But the reality is that we have a tremendous cynicism about these things. Our many hospitals, doctors, medicines, pesticides, insurance companies, 
fire and police departments, funeral homes, all of these things bear testimony to the cursed earth. No wonder creation groans. No wonder. But beloved, God did not intend it to be that way originally. That was not God's original intention. And it will continue this way only for a little while in God's timetable. Someday, in the world to come, when the kingdom comes in all of its fullness, hospitals will be closed. Doctors will be put out of business. I'm sorry if you're a doctor. I'm sorry. You'll be put out of business. There'll be no more need for you. Hallelujah. Insurance companies, we won't need them anymore. Police and fire departments, we won't need them anymore. Aren't you excited? The ravenous nature of human beings will be changed. Beloved, we read from Isaiah chapter 2. Man himself will be redeemed. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares. There are spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. And never again will they learn war. A day is coming when in the wonderful plan of God, the dominion of man will be restored. That which God originally intended for man will be given back to him. He will have his kingdom and he will have his crown again to rule over God's creation. God's redeemed ones will never again be subject to death. Never ever again. The last enemy death finally defeated. And that brings us to this third point now as we've been talking. The ideal that was meant for man that was so restricted by sin, so restricted by Adam and Eve's disobedience has been recovered. It's guaranteed back to us. But it's been recovered for us by Jesus, by Christ. He is, in that sense, the best man for the job, isn't he? He's the best man. He is called by Paul in another place, the second Adam. The first Adam failed miserably. The first Adam failed a loyalty test, but the second Adam, Jesus Christ, passed that loyalty test. And he did so as the Son of Man. Now look with me back again at Hebrews. I want you to read with me verse 9 now. Remember, we've just come away and we've seen that at present we do not see everything subject to him, either to man or to Christ, but, he says, we see Jesus. How do we see Jesus? We see him through the eye of faith, don't we? We see him through the eye of faith, revealed through the scriptures now. He says, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. Was Jesus made a little lower than the angels? Yes. For a little while, huh? While he was here on earth, while he sojourned on the earth. But now we see him crowned with glory and honor because he suffered what? Death. There's a connection. The crowning with glory and honor is associated with what? Suffering and death. We see him crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that, now here's the point of his suffering, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. 
Christ now, by his death, opens the way for us to be not only reconciled with God, to once again, though, inherit all of the creation that God intended for us originally. Isn't the ultimate curse of man's lost destiny death? Isn't that the ultimate curse, death? Remember what God said to the man? He said in the garden, the warning, the day you eat of this tree is the day you you will surely die. The ultimate curse is death. Separation in its ultimate sense. But the cross of Jesus Christ, we're told here, he tasted death for everyone. The cross of Jesus Christ conquered the curse of death. Nobody else could do this. Only Jesus. Beloved, the kingdom will be restored and man will be given his crown again. Now how can this happen? How can this happen? How can we, who are sinners, become sinless as was Adam? How can this happen? Doesn't restitution have to be made? Yes? Restitution has to be made for sin, doesn't it? Surely. What is that restitution? Isn't it death? The wages of sin is death. So a a life has to be given. Uh, The penalty has to be paid for people to be able to go free, to be declared not guilty anymore, right? And if we are to be remade and remade in that sinless state, then a death has to be offered. A life has to be given. Now, a question. If man is to be restored, he must die. And he must be raised again. True? He must die. Now, how can that happen? Can we accomplish this ourselves? Can we die and then be resurrected ourselves, new creatures? How does this happen? How does it happen? It happens in Christ, doesn't it? See, this this is the mystery of becoming a Christian. And we find it, Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 6. So flip back to Romans chapter 6, if you would. Now look at verse verse 3. He says, Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? His death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. In order that Christ, as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a what kind of life? New life. He goes on and he says, And if we have been united with him in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be rendered powerless, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Is that not a beautiful thought? We should no longer be slaves to sin? Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. What's true of Christ is true of me. 
If I've died with Christ and I've been raised with him, if he's not going to die again, then I will not. He says, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way now, he says, count yourselves or consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That phrase, in Christ Jesus, is absolutely critical. What does he mean? Well, I died 20 years ago. I died 20 years ago. But I was raised from the dead. I was. Do you believe that? I was raised from the dead with Jesus. The moment I put my faith in Jesus Christ, I was united with him. That's what Paul has told me in in verse 3 of chapter 6 of Romans. The moment I put my faith in Christ, I believed in Jesus. I was united with him in his death, his burial, and resurrection. A miracle happened in that unseen, non-experiential realm of faith. A miracle happened, and I was transformed. I died with him on that cross. I was raised with him to new life. And for everyone, for everyone who knows and loves Jesus Christ, the moment you received him into your life, you also were identified with him. You also were crucified with him. You also were buried with him. You also were raised to new life with him. And it's a life with the curse removed. That's why Paul can say in Romans 8, 1, There is now therefore no condemnation to him, to those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are a true born-again Christian, there is no condemnation. The curse has been removed from your life. Hallelujah. Now, to us, belongs the kingdom. We are now co-heirs with Christ. We are only awaiting the fullness of the kingdom to arrive. We are co-heirs with him. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, he says, it's such a done deal that we are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I mean, that's how sure it is. We're just awaiting for the fullness of the kingdom to arrive. Final consummation. In the meantime, guess what? Our old bodies may fall off, huh? These old earth suits that we're walking around in, uh, they're going to fall off someday, possibly. But we are not going to die. That new creation that I am in Christ is not going to die, though this old earth suit is going to fall off. This body may die, but even though it may die one day, it also will be raised imperishable. It will be raised to a new and eternal form also. Think about that. A brand new body. Never, ever get sick has power that you never even imagined. Abilities that you never, ever thought possible. 
we will be, when this old body falls off, we will be immediately released, liberated, if you will, to go to the very presence of Jesus. To be apart from the body is to be at home with the Lord, we're told. Immediately liberated to go be with Jesus. Or if he comes again, we'll be taken right out of this earth with him. We'll be translated to meet him in the air. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 tells us. But to accomplish this great work on our behalf, the Son had to become a man, the man Jesus. He had to become a man. And he himself had to be made for a little while lower than the angels that he might accomplish this great work for us. What, O Lord, is man that you are mindful of him to do this great thing? To regain man's dominion, Jesus had to taste death for us. For us. He took the test for us. He passed the test for us. And the A that he got on the test was put in my teacher's grade book next to my name. So when my report card comes out, I got a big old fat A next to my name. And it's all legitimate. It's all legitimate. Now, if a man dies for his own sin, what happens to him? You see, you're going to die one of two ways. Either you die with Christ or you die without him. If you die without him, that means you're dying for your own sin and you're doomed to hell forever. Isn't it much better to die with Christ? Isn't it much better to let Jesus take your sin upon himself and die in your place? And you identify with that death and all the benefits that accrue from that accrue to you? Much better. Christ came to die for us because in his dying, only he could conquer sin and death. Only he could conquer them. He was the perfect sacrifice. God in the flesh. Satisfy his own justice. He kept his own law perfectly for us and he also took and satisfied his own justice for us. Beloved, as you and I identify ourselves with Jesus Christ in his death, as we receive him as Savior, the curse is removed from our life. And we become joint heirs with him in that eternal kingdom, that coming inhabited earth that is spoken of here in Hebrews. Christ tasted death for you. He tasted death for me. He did it to recover our lost destiny, that which God originally intended for us in the very beginning. And if you have been in your life groping around and you've been trying to figure out who you are, why you exist, what your purpose is, I hope now that you know the reason. Beloved, there is no reason for any of us to be slaves any longer to sin. There is no reason for any of us to continue to be slaves to the things of this life. There is no reason for any of us to be paupers, to be poor in spirit in terms of of not having a fullness of God's joy and peace. There is no reason because we have restored to us our full original 
birthright. There is only reason for us to be rulers. Indeed, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 37, that through Christ, we are more than conquerors. We are super Nikes. That's the, that's the literal translation of that Greek word in that text. People ask today, they still ask today, what is man? And there are all sorts of foolish ideas about who man is, what he's all about. Some people who say, well, he's, he's low on the scale of creation. And they evidence that by the fact that they worship various parts of creation. They worship sticks and animals and snakes and cows. Other people say, well, man is higher than the animals. He's just another animal. He's just the product of evolution. When he dies, he just goes out of existence. Everything in my being screams against that. There are many, many people who believe many, many foolish things about what man is all about. But God says, God says about man that he is a ruler, a co-heir with Christ. Beloved, we have a great and great future in store for us. This earth is going to pass away. Things that we think are so important are all going to burn And a whole new inhabited earth is going to come. God says man was made to be ruler of the earth. And only for a little while has he been made lower than angels. Someday a redeemed and a recreated mankind will reign with Jesus Christ on a whole new earth. Forever and ever and ever. Amen. Amen. Aren't you glad? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, as we contemplate these things and as we reflect on your great plan and purpose and the very hope that we have as we think of this great salvation that we read about, we can't even hardly comprehend it. Lord, we are so often preoccupied with just the things of this life. It's so hard for us to lift our sights to heavenly things. But Lord, I pray that tonight, somehow you could break through and that you could stimulate our spirits to see and to begin to understand that which you have prepared for those who love you. Father, we give you thanks tonight. I pray that as we as we come to the table to receive communion together, that our remembrance of Jesus would be oh so real and powerful. God, that we would be so full of thanksgiving and our worship, our attitude, indeed would be pleasing to you. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the great plan of salvation. And thank you for the hope that we have. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Now the communion servers will be distributing communion to you. I've gone a little long, I know, and I pray you be patient.